Well, good morning. It is great to be with you this morning. And Sergio and the team, thank you very much. That was outstanding. Just wonderful, wonderful worship. It was um, so meaningful to me. Well, as Chad and Jim told you last Sunday, I have just announced my retirement from Wheaton Bible Church to be effective in the middle of next year. Uh, spring, summerish is what we're thinking. And I, I, I know they explained some of this, but I want you to just hear a couple of things from me. This is a decision that God has been stirring within me that Rhonda and I have prayed a, a ton about. And actually, we have been discussing this, wrestling with this as elders for over four years now. And it's been a, a, an exceptionally delightful process. I wish other churches could experience what I've been experiencing in this. And now we have moved into the public phase as we begin to prepare uh, for a search process. I also want you to know for me that, man, this is a really hard decision for both Rhonda and myself because we love Wheaton Bible Church. I have been here for 25 and a half years as a senior pastor, but my wife Rhonda's been in the church for 33 years. And so what that means is we have spent the bulk of our adult lives here. We raised our kids here. Our kids got married um, at Wheaton Bible Church. Rhonda and I grieved and buried the death of our first two spouses at the church. And then I met and fell in love with Rhonda here at this church. It's been such a huge part of our, li <clears throat> our lives, excuse me, and I'm a better man, I'm a better pastor because of these 25 and a half years that will soon be uh, 26. But the reality is in three months, I'm going to be 67. So I am old and irrelevant, right? Um, and it's time to transition to younger leadership. That's really important for the future of our church. I believe that with everything in me. So I will retire in the next 12 to 15 months. And I'm staying on in order to provide continuity of leadership during this time of transition. Because what's before the leaders now is to listen to the congregation. That's why we're having these Ask Us Anything meetings. That's why we'll form focus groups. And you can be a part of all this as we lay out the criteria for the next pastor who will come behind me um, and what that pastor should be like, what his strengths uh, should be. And then that gives us time to actually, after about two months of listening, to form a search committee and then to conduct a nationwide prayer-based search. We will look both internally and externally. Uh, one other thing I want you to know is while I'm going to be retiring from my role as a senior pastor, I'm not going to be retiring from ministry. I'm actually flipping or moving, transitioning into another area of passion, and that's, uh, for me, uh, the global cause of Christ. So I'm going to go to work on a part-time basis with Greater Europe Mission, where I've been the chairman of the board for the last 12 years. I'll be doing a number of things for GEM. And so let me just conclude by saying during this time of transition, we must all remember 
that the most important name in this church is Jesus Christ, right? That he is the head of the church, not a human. That he loves us, that he will lead us, that he will guide us as he has done for the last 90 years. Jesus is the only name that matters, not mine. And so therefore, and Carol mentioned this early, the most important thing we can do is pray. Pray that Jesus will be glorified during this period of transition. This period, if you will, of some unsettledness. That Jesus will be glorified in our unity as we listen to one another, learn from one another, and pray together that Jesus will be glorified in who he brings as the next senior pastor of Wheaton Bible Church to lead this church into the future that God has in store for us. So I just want you to hear a couple of those things uh, from me. And now what I want to do is I want to transition to this phenomenal passage that we're going to look at this morning. Um, we are in this series entitled True Identity. In other words, we're looking at uh, um, what the Ephesians has to say about our significance and our worth in Christ. I'll talk about that on and off a little uh, this morning. But this series is rooted, as Sergio mentioned, in this fabulous, I mean fabulous, New Testament book of Ephesians. I find myself over time regularly memorizing different passages in Ephesians. The prayer Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3, I have prayed for you twice this morning. I've memorized it, I have grabbed it, I've pressed it into my life. And that prayer forms who I am as a man and as a pastor and by God's grace and the Spirit, hopefully, who we are as Wheaton Bible Church. But first, I want to begin by setting this up with a story. And I don't know exactly when it happened to me. I don't know exactly when ethnic diversity in the body of Christ became beautiful to me, but I know where it happened. It happened at Wheaton Bible Church. As year after year, we wrestled with this very important issue of how we could increasingly merge elements of our Latino ministry with our Anglo ministry, and what would that look like? But if I am honest, and I go back over 20 years ago, when we were wrestling with this, uh, that was a period of a lot of conflict. There were a lot of egos, there was a lot of territorialism, and at two specific points, I wondered if we were going to even survive together. But then God raised up a man to lead us into the future. His name is Hannibal Rodriguez, one of our pastors here. And Hannibal, as a Colombian, began to speak to us and to talk to us about not only the biblical priority, but what it means to sensitively carry this out. 
So, for example, Hannibal had us read papers. Hannibal had us uh, read books and discuss them as staff and elders, working through this priority, this importance, according to the Bible, of ethnic, racial uh, diversity and, and unity. Hannibal brought in thought leaders. And I, I just want you to know, uh, personally, Hannibal would regularly speak into my life. And say, hey, Rob, uh, you, need to, you need to think more broadly. You need to think with different lens. Uh, you need to cultivate more sensitivity in how you approach this and, and how you see, see things. And I submitted myself completely to Hannibal in this area. And Hannibal taught me so much. And as a result, I have changed and Wheaton Bible Church has changed. So that now, for example, Hannibal is one of our three executive pastors with responsibility for large portions of our total ministry. Sergio, who just led us in worship, is now the lead worship pastor at Wheaton Bible Church, overseeing all the worship teams and all that we are, are, are doing. We have worked really hard over especially the last few years. Uh, to create ethnic uh, diversity in our worship teams, our preaching teams, and different teams throughout the church to slowly change Wheaton Bible Church. Now, we've made some progress. We've got a long way to go. So we certainly haven't uh, arrived. Uh, we continue to see God work in, in a variety of uh, different areas. Uh, so, for example... I have been really encouraged to see what's happened on our North Avenue campus over the last couple of years. We have adult classes, get this, that are really uh, small churches within the church. Uh, one for Arabs, one for Filipinos, one for French-speaking Africans. And they're all a part of the larger family of, of Wheaton Bible Church. As Sergio uh, or, or, or Carol said um, a, a minute ago, we have five uh, worship services on Sunday uh, on our North Avenue campus, and the, the fifth is a Spanish-speaking service, and we have been doing that for 25 years. And it's just a beautiful thing. Uh, I wonder if you know that we are, Wheaton Bible Church is the largest social service provider in the city of West Chicago. Not the government, not any other social services agencies, but we are. And almost exclusively, our ministry is to non-whites. Diversity has become central to our vision. It's become central to our multi-site strategy going forward. In my own family, just talking about my family, as God has worked uh, over the years, we now have a Korean daughter-in-law, a Samoan son-in-law, and two foster care grandkids, one an African-American, one a Latino, that we are praying that Los Angeles County will allow our daughter and her husband to adopt. Now, I say all this because this morning, we not only come to one of the most important passages in the New Testament, on the church, we come to one of the most important passages in the New Testament 
on racial, ethnic unity and diversity in the body of Christ. I happen to think it's especially important for the church today in the United States. So would you stand as I read, beginning in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that would be the Jews, and here Paul kind of um, dismisses that attitude when he says, and it is something done in the body by human hands. In other words, it's not a hard thing. Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, that is Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. That's a reference to Gentiles and Jews. Now, as I prepare to read verse 18, notice we have all three members of the Trinity in this verse. For through him, Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, built on the foundation of truth, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And that's God's word. You may be seated. Now, all of us as pastors here have gone to school on the, the writings and the sermons of New York City author and pastor Tim Keller. Uh, we have this bro romance going on. And because I, I love what he has done uh, with this passage, his thoughts and his words have deeply in, influenced mine. Now, I see three sections here. And uh, beginning in verse 11 through verse 15, we have the problem. Then beginning in verse 15 through verse 18, we have the solution to the problem. And then beginning in verse 19 through the last four verses, we have the result of the solution to the problem. Now, as Keller points out, we're miles ahead of the game if we think of this as an ethnic, as a racial case study. The problem here is that the Jews and the Gentiles hate each other. Paul uses the word hostility two times. 
Once in verse 14, once in verse 16. Hostility, uh, the Greek word hostility simply means hate. Now uh, look at verse 14. Paul in verse 14 talks about this dividing wall of hostility. Now that could refer to a couple things. It could, for example, refer to the wall that surrounded the Jewish temple as Paul wrote this letter to the cluster of churches in the Ephesus area. And in that wall, at periodic points around the entirety of the temple, there was writing etched in stone that said foreigners, Gentiles, are forbidden to enter the courts of the temple. Now what's interesting is that's not just speculation. Archaeologists have discovered a couple of those stones. Here I'll show you a picture of one. This is one of the stones with that warning to Gentiles that were interspersed around the temple. So does the dividing wall of hostility refer to that? Uh, well, it could, but the better referent is the explicit one that Paul gives us in verse 15, the next verse, when he tells us that the dividing wall of hostility was the Old Testament law with its commands and regulations. Wait, the Old Testament was a dividing wall of hostility? Well, let's go back for a moment in time. At the very beginning of the history of Israel in Genesis chapter 12, Israel as a nation is brought into existence by God himself as he appointed Abraham to be the father of the Jewish race. And in Genesis 12, as God makes this covenant, this promise to Abraham, God reveals the purpose of raising up Israel as a nation. And the purpose was so that Israel would be a blessing, that's a word used, or a light to the surrounding nations, to the Gentile uh, nations. And so God gave Israel the law. Ceremonial law, moral law, as a gift. So in obedience to it, Israel could show the Gentile nations as an act of love and mercy what it means to live a godly life in submission to the law. What it means uh, to actively worship God uh, according to the law. But that gift became a curse. A source of extreme hostility. Because Jews, instead of extending love and mercy to the surrounding nations, as they openly lived a godly life, inviting people uh, to worship God, Jews despised Gentiles for not having the law. They're the uncircumcised. And the Gentiles despise the Jews for their arrogance, for their exclusivity, for their hostility, for despising them. So, God never intended this. But the good gift of the law became an occasion for hate. That's why Paul uses this word, hate, twice. And that's Paul's point. Now, 
This is a case study. So what is going on here, if we step back, is that the Apostle Paul is actually illustrating a much deeper, a much more pervasive, a much more, a much more universal problem. And that is, now follow me in this, that when God gives his people blessings and gifts, say a particular ethnic background, a particular skin color, a, 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 a particular set of talents and strengths and circumstances and education, we take these because of our sinful hearts and elevate them. And then we look down on others who are different. They're uncircumcised. And hostility and hate is the result. Now this is a series on identity, on our significance, on our worth. And the point is, we take the good gifts that God ha has given us, and we elevate them, and they become the mistaken source of our identity. I'm black, I'm white. I did this, I'm educated. You know, whatever. And what we do when that becomes a source of our identity is we look down on others. So, for example, this is why the Jewish prophet Jonah refused to go preach to the Gentiles. Never mind that God had this plan to save thousands of them. Jonah ends up in the belly of a what? A whale? Because he despised the Gentiles. It's why in Galatians, the Apostle Paul had to rebuke the Apostle Peter. Because Peter had suddenly decided that he couldn't eat with the Gentiles. Because he looked down on the Gentiles and considered them to be unclean. Now look at this passage in Luke chapter 18, just two verses. We have an illustration of this in terms of the human heart. This is a parable. Jesus is speaking. Luke chapter 18 and verse 11. Um, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Now notice this. God, I thank you that I am not like these other people. Uh, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. And he had a little sign on his chest and he wrote all these things down so everybody could know it. And you know, this is sick. And that's Jesus' point. But this is a picture of fallen humanity. This is a picture of our hearts apart from Jesus Christ. And we all do this in little ways, medium-sized ways, and unfortunately, in big ways. So uh, let me illustrate this. Uh, a pastor tells the story of doing a mixed-race wedding. The groom was white. The bride was Latino. The wedding was to start at 2 p.m. Now, you know where I'm going with this? <laughs> at 1.55, all the white people were there. 
2 o'clock came and went, and over the next 20, 30 minutes, am I being fair, Sergio? Um, uh, uh, Latinos who were just full of joy and hugging one another uh, came in, and the Latino bride was 45 minutes late to her wedding. And you know what the whites were thinking? The white people were thinking, these Latinos are rude. They're lazy. And you know what the Latino people were thinking? These white people are so uptight. <laughs> They're so bound by time. They're uh, so angry. And do you know what was going on? Each group elevated the strengths of their culture and they looked down on the other group. That's what Paul is getting at here. This starts really early in our culture today. Uh, in our elementary schools, junior high, high schools, where popular kids look down on less popular kids, right? And less popular kids look down on popular kids. Uh, they're so superficial. This happens in our politics with our own political views. You're stupid enough to vote for who? It happens with our, our teams. It happens with our education. So if you live in the South, I've spent a fair amount of time in the South. I have a son that, that lives in the South. And you went to Alabama and your neighbor went to Auburn. You may wave at each other, but you may never speak to each other. He went to Alabama. Now, let me take this a step further. Go ahead. Thank you. Go ahead. I will. Take your time. Friends, this is why this planet runs red with human blood. What Paul is talking about is such an enormous problem. It's why we not just hate each other, why we kill each other. Now let me use a metaphor. The fin above the water is hate and hostility, arrogance. Ethnic, cultural, uh, material, educational arrogance. That's the fin above the water. You know what the shark underneath the water is? The shark is our misplaced identity. And we're like this because our identity is skewed. And therefore our relationships are skewed. And this isn't just an intellectual, this isn't just an educational problem, this is a heart problem. So what is the solution? It's twofold according to verse 15. Now let's go back to the first sentence, and I want to look at the first part of Paul's solution, because there's two parts. And notice he says in the first part of verse 15, that Jesus set aside in his flesh the law, 
with its commands and regulations. Now, now what does that mean? How did Jesus do this? What does it mean to set aside uh, 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 the law? Well, it means Jesus did two things. He fulfilled the demands, the righteous demands of the law by living a perfect life. That's why Jesus lived a perfect life. So we could fulfill the law in a way we simply can't. And then, (coughs) excuse me, he absorbed the condemnation and consequences of our sinful failure to keep the law by dying on the cross in our place for our, our, our sins. So Jesus sets, aside, sets it aside by living a perfect life for us. By dying in our place uh, for our sins. But then we come to the second sentence in verse 15. And we see the second part of the solution. And this is unbelievable. Every bit as unbelievable as what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And what Paul tells us is God's purpose in Christ was to create a new race, one race, a new humanity, one humanity, a humanity of love redeemed and transformed by Jesus Christ. So the solution is hostile people, previously hostile people become a new humanity in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Do you see this? Now, uh, it's one thing to belong to a club, say a motorcycle club, where everybody shares this one common passion for motorcycles. And it's another thing to belong to a particular race, a particular ethnicity, where you have hundreds of additional things in common. But greater still is when you become a Christian. And with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have this unbelievable spiritual connection, the most profound connection of all, our connection in Jesus Christ, which is ultimately way, way deeper than motorcycles or politics or skin color or job or family. As Paul says it, in Christ we are a new humanity, one humanity, not 15 And we are equal at the foot of the cross. So Paul elaborates on this, uh, if you go back a couple of pages in your Bibles, in Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all, 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 all children of God through faith. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one, one In Christ Jesus. The death of Jesus Christ makes us all equal. Uh, The death of Jesus Christ uh, has a vertical dimension. Uh, The death of Christ forgives sins. But Paul is telling us here in in Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and here in Galatians. But it also reconciles people uh, to one another. So that there is no superior person, there is no superior race, there is no superior skin color. Because God in his sovereignty created diversity. And the church is the one place where it must be celebrated. 
Now let me apply this. World War II, a group of American soldiers had lost a fellow soldier. So they went, they were in France, so they went to a French Catholic priest requesting that this dead comrade could be buried in the Catholic cemetery. But the Catholic priest refused when he learned that this dead soldier wasn't a Catholic. So frustrated, the soldiers went out that night and buried their dead brother in a grave right by, just outside the fence. They got up the next morning, they went by the grave to pay their respects as they had to get back, and they couldn't find the grave. It was gone. So they went to the Catholic priest and said, what's going on? And the Catholic priest said, oh, I've got to tell you, the first part of the night, I was so ashamed by what I said to you that I spent the second part of the night moving the fence. Jesus moved the fence. So all of us could become one. So that no one who comes to Jesus Christ would be excluded. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you know what your responsibility is? Is to continually move the fence of your heart. Amen. To tear it down. Yes, sir. To tear down those walls, those things uh, uh, that uh, divide us so that regardless of skin color, regardless of the number of tattoos, Regardless of whether uh, somebody's hair is a delightful mix of bright orange and bright purple. Uh, regardless of whether they smell. Or how different their politics is. Or uh, the, the poverty they are um, uh, immersed in. That the church of Jesus Christ would be the one place where those who outside the church would never get along Get along inside the church. Because to be the church, according to Ephesians chapter 2, is to be a new humanity. So we welcome people. We welcome people into our churches regardless. We welcome people into our life groups. Uh, we, we serve the poor. We practice radical hospitality. We seek justice. We extend mercy and we partner with the nations, the different ethnicities, to advance the gospel around the world. Now, I want to plead with you to talk about what this looks like in your life groups. What it means for your group, what it means for you individually, what it means for uh, uh, us as a church. And, and I want you to think about this. This came to me last week. If the gospel is anything, it's a call to taking next steps. So what are your next steps today because of the gospel? What are your next steps in, in, in this area? Now let me go, uh, before I go on, um, and you're going to have to forgive me here, um, I, 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 I want to drill down because ultimately this is an identity problem. This is an identity thing. Jesus Christ came to crucify your comparison apparatus. Jesus Christ came to crucify your performance apparatus. Your arrogant 
apparatus. Which is all part of your, uh, our, our, our fallen identity apparatus. And Jesus came to remake us from the inside out so that our significant security and worth isn't based on anything horizontal, but that which is vertical. And by that I mean what Jesus Christ has done for us in forgiving us and redeeming us and adopting us. Indwelling us. And, and I could go on. Look at verse 17. Paul says in, in verse 17, he came, Jesus came and preached peace. To you who were far away, the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, the Jews. The peace Jesus Christ preached in part or at the center is that your identity apparatus is now found in your union with Christ. And you are totally accepted. You are totally loved as a believer in Jesus Christ. And your significance is not in your performance, but in Jesus' performance. Not in what you need to do, but what Jesus Christ has already done for you. And if you understand this and you press it down into the core of your being, man, it frees you from pride on the one hand and feelings of worthlessness on the other. It frees you from the hate and the hostility. And it frees you to extend mercy because you've been blown away by the mercy you have received. And you, believer in Jesus Christ, understand that God's mercies are new every morning. Every morning. Yes, every sir. morning. Yes, sir. And so I wonder, as a church, are we really like that? Are we individually really like this? If the gospel means anything... It's a call to taking steps. Are you taking steps towards others just as Jesus took a giant step toward you? Okay, so the problem, the problem is hostility. It's rooted in misplaced identity. The solution is our new humanity through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And that brings us in verse 19 uh, to the result of all this, that the church becomes the very dwelling of God. Now I'm going to go quickly here, but Paul gives us three images to describe the church, and each one is more intense than the one that comes before. So for example, at the beginning of verse 19, we have the first, and Paul uses the image of a nation or a, a country, and he tells us we're fellow citizens in Jesus Christ. Then later in verse 19, we have the second image, where Paul uses the image of a family and tells us that we are members of God's household. Then he skips to verse 20 and verse 21, or actually it's in 20 and 21, Paul uses the image of the Jewish temple. Telling us we are stones, living stone in God's holy living temple. Now notice the increased intensity vertically in our relationship with God. In a country, the king often lives far away. In a home, the father is near, but he's often in and out. But in the temple, God is inside us. And together we house the living God. God is present. Proximate. Now this is Paul's point in verse 22. Look, 
And in him you too are being built, and here's this important word, together. To become what? To become a... I, how do you, I can't get my mind around this. A dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. But also I want you to see the intensity relative to our relationships with one another. Because in a country or in a nation, people are often long distance from others. In a home, in a family, they're near but often living independent lives. But if you are a stone in God's holy temple, and according to this passage you are as a believer, you are cemented to each other. You are connected to each other. Amen. And you are dependent upon each other. In other words, cultural bonds are powerful. Family bonds even more so. But if you are a stone designed specifically to be a perfect fit in the temple. And God in his sovereignty has given you uh, perfect circumstances, a, a background that was part of his plan for you, gifts and talents and uh, 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 other things so that you might align with the other stones. Uh, uh, friends, that's the greatest bond of all. The most powerful unifying force in the world isn't culture, it isn't family. It's the gospel. Amen. That we are a new humanity, one race, not many, one race in Jesus Christ. Amen. So let me ask you a couple of questions. How in the world can we just show up for church? How in the world can we justify not giving ourselves to the church? To loving and serving people that, that are different than us. I'm a little stone in God's living temple. But you know, uh, 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 to my right, the, the stone next to me is a single parent African-American woman who's barely living above the poverty line, but boy, can she pray. On the other side of me is another stone, a, a Chinese Muslim terrorist, right. a cocaine addict right. who's been a hitman. And he has become so blown away by the forgiveness that he has found in Jesus Christ that he has become a tender giant. Amen. Below me is a, is a precious woman who battled depression her entire life, whose life was plagued with doubts. And was hospitalized repeatedly. Yet she persevered in her faith. And had moments, periods of incredible peace. That's God's holy temple. And the diversity is what makes it uh, look uh, beautiful. Now you say, well, hold on. I don't especially like a lot of the other Christians I know. And I want to say to you in love, of course you don't. That's the point. We're not a country club. Right. Thank you. Uh, we're not. Or, or maybe uh, you think... 
You know, I can be a good Christian and really not have anything to do with the church. That's where a lot of young evangelicals are today. And I, I, I say to you, here God says, that's not true. Here God says, that's wrong. Here God says, the way you are and I are vitally connected to Christ is by being vitally connected to one another. Oh yeah, but the church is a mess. The church has hurt me. Uh, yes, it is a mess. And of course the church is going to hurt people because it's made up of a bunch of fallen people just like me. Amen. But I will tell you, when my first wife Carol died and battled cancer month after month, it was the people of Wheaton Bible Church. It was my friends. It was the community of Wheaton Bible Church that kept me from drowning in my grief. Now, how do we pull this off? Well, look at verse 20, and I'm done. In verse 20, we are told that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most crucial block in a building, in the building's foundation. All other stones, all other walls are aligned to this cornerstone. And do you see the point? The point is, to the extent that Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. I mean, the cornerstone in your heart. That Jesus is central to your heart. That Jesus is the bedrock of your identity. Not these other things. Then together, we really will become the temple of the living God. And the world will know we are Jesus' disciples by our love. By the way we love people who are different than us. Amen. Let's pray. So Father, we come to you and we beg for forgiveness and for mercy. We confess to you the hostility that is often in our heart. And we ask, God, that you would work and, and you would help us to become so alive in your mercy that we long to extend mercy to others, even when we don't feel like it. So bless us. Give us grace to see Jesus each and every day as our cornerstone. Amen.